Welcome back to another episode of Appalachian Angkin. I'm Caleb and I'm here with Adam. And I'm Daryl. And this is a bit of a cool topic for this week. Might be a little spooky, might be a little scary, but mm. it's okay. We'll we'll, okay. we'll we'll go through it. We'll we'll we'll, we'll make it feel easy by then. Do we need to get like thriller as our bump, bumper music or something? Oh <laughs> thriller. <laughs> Yeah, for this for this episode, I'm just going to put a picture of Michael Jackson, actually, for, okay. for the, <laughs> oh, for the <laughs> thumbnail. The problem is now we have people literally singing the song in their head right now and kind of <laughs> dancing with a little jive there, so. Yeah. So what's the topic then? The topic today is going to be exorcism. Okay, all right. So we can definitely tell, and I mean, there's uh, let me Let me say this, too, um, because I... If anybody keeps up with my personal schedule that might be listening to this, they may think that we're doing this topic now because of the number of requ- requests that I've been getting recently, which are, are they are. I mean, this is happening for us. But we put this list together for this these season two episodes, what, a mo- six weeks ago? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So just so anybody who, who might listen to think, oh, he, he they're doing exorcism because he's out doing, no, no, no. This was planned at some time back. Yeah, so leave that at the door, all right? <laughs> or maybe you can make these lists. You can like start, you know, making a little bit more happy and loving. <laughs> <laughs> but definitely, uh, this topic is going to be interesting because, well, you—I mean, you even literally had a movie called The Exorcist. You have all these crazy things going on, based on real events. Yeah, based on real events. Yeah. It's actually where I built most of my theology on exorcism. I just kept watching. I figured that was it. No, 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 <laughs> no, no. Too much, too, too, too much Hollywood in it. So, and so I guess instead of taking all of our ideas and our theology and building them on Hollywood, I guess we'll go ahead and discuss this one today. Okay. So I think we'll start off a little differently. I would say, I mean, we kind of know what an exorcism is. Most people would know, I would think, in that mm. sense, obviously, because it is like they kind of got, you know, Hollywood maybe got that part a little right. But like, um, why would someone need to be exercised? I guess we'll start off with that kind of thinking. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, you would you could exercise a person, but also objects and people. Okay. Like objects, people, places, houses, I mean, stuff. Uh typically when holy water is being um blessed or consecrated, very often salt is part of that and salt is exercised before it's used. Right? Because of Elisha. Remember how Elisha uses salt to heal the water in the book of Judges. I'm sorry. <sighs> how Elijah in Kings uses salt to heal the water. So, you know, blessing salt. And we, we mentioned Hippolytus, uh, what, episode one in his apostolic tradition. He talks about all these things that are blessed, you know, as part of the life of the church. Uh, so you have, you can have exorcism in that sense, right, for those different places. And you get places, avenues, venues, people, etc. Some would say animals. Uh, if you follow uh, ob- the whole object idea, you know, what was the really, it was really, really popular based upon the Warrens back in the 70s. Uh, the Annabelle dolls, right? The the Annabelle doll. Uh, if you remember the slasher movies from the 80s, you know, the Chucky doll is possessed, right? Oh, man. Right. Um, Hollywood is taking some sliver of something that may have possibly been true at some point, you know, and, and making movies on it. You've got fetishes, you know, the use of objects to convey witchcraft and voodoo and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, it's, you would, cast the demon out of those things. And people have problems with that. Uh, of course they do. Say, oh, this is not true. But, you know, it's one of those things like there's a uh, something that's been invested with, with, you know, evil spirits, 
But the moment it's out of your house, your house is at peace. Well, I mean, I, I don't think it takes a whole lot of rocket science to figure out, oh, yes, there was something about that that was a problem. Why would a person be be exercised? Well, we would want to differentiate between the different ways in which demonic powers attack people. The most common, and this is common for all of us, is temptation. You know, not 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 the temptation of the flesh, but temptation that's external to yourself. You know, and and you can gauge usually that a temptation has demonic or diabolic uh, source because it's out of characteristic with your temperament. Right, something, something in that that sense. That's one way. There's other ways, but that's one way. Um, but you go from temptation to obsession. You know, the mind is is genuinely obsessed. The heart is obsessed with a thing that's not good. Right. You move on then into like infestation. So like, uh, you know, uh, swarms of bugs or rats or, you know, stinking sulfur smells. I mean, it's. I know this sounds like Hollywood guys, but this stuff is legit. I mean, this is what happens. Um, those things are in places or associated with people. And then and then possession itself um, is when the demon or demons, there's usually more than one, has taken physical control of a person to make them speak and move. All of that, all of those categories fall under the scriptural term demonized. Some, something is demonized. And so there, you've got that one biblical term, but then all these venues that we see as part of it. Okay. And, um, when a person, a person's being exercised, that demon is being ekbalo in the words of the Greek, it's being driven out, it's being cast out. And you've got different ways of that for that to happen. So you've got uh, imprecatory and uh, where you're the, you know, the priest or the, the, the minister commands, you know, the unclean spirit to leave. And then you've got where they're petitioning to God that God would cause the spirit to leave. So you've got like a minor exorcism or minor deliverances where there's no actual command for the demon to leave, but it leaves because there's the petition and God God does that. And then you have the kind where the, the minister, the priest, the bishop commands it to leave. In, in, our, in our liturgies with Hippolytus, and this goes back to, you know, Matthew 10 uh, and Luke as well. And then, as I mentioned, Hippolytus is traditionally ordination of bishops. When, when a priest is made a bishop, part of the prayer of blessing and consecration is the authority over unclean spirits. It's, it's an innate charism in the bishop's office is to have authority over demons. So I don't know if that answers. I think it does. Okay. Um, mainly for obviously why, but also a little bit, also it's still in that question of like, what is it? Cause that's a thing too, where like most people don't know that, you know, it, it's not necessarily someone, uh, you know, crazy like in Hollywood where it's like maybe their head's spinning around like an owl or something like that but well I mean you, <laughs> you can have I'm not you, trying to make a lot of the situation right, but <laughs> no I mean you can have very dramatic manifestations you know of that evil spirit as it is being commanded to leave you know because it doesn't want to and you got in the gospels you got a variety of ways that happens you know falling shaking contorting thrown in the fire thrown in the water physical sicknesses uh, you know mute deaf uh a host of things. And so you can see some uh, some of the similar realities today. Yeah. Sometimes it's a lot more subtle, you know, it's um, like heavy breathing or uh, uh, like big sighing and sneezing and coughing. Like when the demon, like it's, it can be very subtle, you know, because you cannot separate the psychological component and the spiritual component. Right. You know? or, or let me use biblical language. You can't separate your soul, the psychological. You can't separate your soul from the influence of the diabolic when we're talking about possession. Those things are, are connected. So you've got a physiological manifestation 
because of what's going on spiritually. And um, so there's like, I guess, kind of touch on like the process, the process of it, where it's like, what what goes on there if someone is manifest? No, what would be the word? Yeah, I mean, showing man. signs of it or whatever. How would that work? And like, what's kind of going on there in the middle of it? So for us, the way this usually goes, because I, like I said, I do get these calls, and it's almost like. Uh, a lot of them and then none for a while and then a lot of them and none for a while. So it's typically something to this effect. I go meet with the person. Okay. I, I go talk with them because I want to find out, are you getting enough sleep? Is your diet good? Are you getting some vitamin D? I mean, it sounds really, yeah. really silly, but those are things that you want to, like, are you physically healthy? Have you talked to a doctor? Do you have a counselor? You know, do you need a psychologist? Are you on psychological medication? Are you, like, is there something going on that's not fundamentally diabolic that's spiritual is there another explanation for this right so i go talk to people about that if it's not like them but like their house right i come in and usually they'll say i'm have this is happening in my house this kind of thing and i say okay well don't tell me anything else so i'll go to the house you know with a couple of people or maybe by myself depending upon you know the person and what's going on but usually i've got a group of folks with me and i ask the person who lives in the home don't tell me what's going on you know, we'll walk around and we'll pray and we'll just see if we get a sense on what we, you know. Uh, but then if with the, when a house, it's questions like, how new is the house? You know, or is the wood still settling? You know, where do the, where's the, what's the sound like when the wind blows? What, what's, what sound is happening when the pipes are on? I mean, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff. When you've got like sounds of doors opening and shutting and they're actually opening and shutting and the up and down the steps and voices in the night and it's multiple people are hearing that, you got a pretty good chance that there's something else going on beyond the house is settling, right? So right. I go interview basically the person and talk to them to get a feel for it. Um, in some cases, we have in our in our congregation, we have people who, you know, uh, operate in this kind of ministry. So they'll go talk to the people and they get back to me and say, you know, we can pray. We'll, we'll pray this one, pray for this person, meet with them, et cetera, et cetera. If it looks like it's more than what we think, you know, we'll let you know. We'll let you know how it goes. Okay. Sounds good to me, you know. And then you've got stuff that's just kind of off the cuff. Like I've been on the streets, you know, we go do some, some ministry somewhere. And next thing you know, somebody walks up to me and says, I got a demon. Okay. And we start to pray and they just begin to, to manifest a demon right there on the spot. And in that case, there's no interview. <laughs> yeah, That's not going on. You're just, you know, the situation is in front of you and you've got to do something about it. Yeah. I think that leads me to the question of who. Like who, who deals with this? You specifically mentioned like the bishop as a, an official right of that office. Who, like, what is the right answer? Who should go? Who should deal with these things? And under, I guess, is there like a permission or, or is it like, oh, like obviously the one like you're talking about doing street ministry is like, all right, let's deal with the immediate threat. But there's other issues that you have a little bit more uh, planning, prayer, et cetera. Uh, well, what is yeah. the right way to do yeah. it? So with deep, deprecatory and imprecatory praying against demonic spirits, I mean, that's that's like one of the differences between deliverance and exorcism, okay? All Christians are supposed to pray, de, de, like we're supposed to petition God for deliverance. It's in the Lord's Prayer, you know, deliver us from evil, the evil one. So that's that's part of the Christian experience is to teach people to pray that way all the time. And there are some people who in their Christian ministry, that's part of how they, they deal with these things. Uh, very, very effectual in their ministry this way. The imprecatory side has been traditionally reserved through all Christian history for bishops and people the bishop specifically delegates. So in the early church, 
he there were there were a group of people called exorcists that were appointed by the bishop who were not ordained. It was a suborder along with acolytes and readers and porters and whatnot. As you get through Christian history, I mean, the way it looks is that people just, they do things they ought not to do. It's not church-sanctioned kind of stuff, and it gets pretty bad. I mean, the stuff gets way over the top. And so it's not until um, the early 1600s that Rome decides to, to put together a, a rite of exorcism, and it basically stays unchanged up until the past 100 years or so. Uh, in the Anglican world, you have a, one of the canons uh, in the early 1600s states that you have to get the bishop's permission for an exorcism. And that's large, had largely been the practice of the Anglican world um, and still is. In our case, you know, our bishop has deferred it to our wisdom as, as his clergy, as to his priests, it's, it's, it's defer this to your wisdom. And obviously, if there's something we feel we need to talk to him about, he wants to know. He, you know, he wants to know when these things are going on. Um, and for our congregation... As I've mentioned, the deprecatory deliverance kind of ministry, we want everybody to be to be able to pray that way. The commanding of of evil spirits to leave immediately is best not to be done unless you have been trained and prepared in that. You know, you you know what you're doing, because there is a real spiritual warfare component to this. Um, you know, demons aren't they don't get tired. They don't have physical bodies. It's a whole different kind of ministry. And you've got to be cognizant of that and have enough people praying with you as you're engaged in activity and that activity. So um, in many Anglican settings, the if it's going to be a formal exorcism, the the priest usually gets permission from the bishop if the if the bishop hasn't already appointed somebody. You know, some dioceses are like that. A call comes into a priest that there's somebody who wants to be, you know, exercised, the demon gone. The priest meets with the person and realizes, yes, this is the case. But then he calls his bishop and says, what do you recommend? And they'll send him to an exorcist in their diocese. Rome does that. The Orthodox are very similar. This is in contrast to a lot of the Pentecostal and charismatic groups who just sort of like, oh, you got a demon, let's cast it out. You got a headache demon, let's cast it out. You got a demon of sinus infection, let's cast it out. And I'm making light, but I'm not really making light because I've been in plenty of places where that's happening. Yeah. And that's not a demon of sinus infection. That's just the fronts are changing. And that's one of the reasons that the church through history said, okay, look, only the people, the bishops authorized for this because it is real. But if you don't treat it rightly, you're creating more danger than you are good. So, you know, those are things to be mindful of. Um, you specifically mentioned rights, uh, that, that Rome has that and that we kind of have a canon on it, but is there an Anglican right? Yeah, uh, but it's typically held by the bishop. He has so the actual forms of exorcism, the rite of exorcism, the bishop has a bishop. The bishop has it, and then some of us, uh, you know, we have things that we've either written um, that we got from the bishop, or we've adapted from other liturgies that have existed through Christian history. Um, I give an example of one. This one, our some of our listeners may find really bizarre. Uh, but it was in the first first prayer book in 1549 when the celebrant would actually exercise with the oil of exorcism um, demons from infants. Infants. This was pretty offensive to some of the more reformed guys, so they cut it out of the 1552 and it uh, and was replaced for more prayers for, for regeneration and whatnot. But it is still a very poignant prayer 
of exorcism. And I want you to hear that this is not deprecatory. This is by the priest. Some Roman Catholic exorcists have lamented that this kind of prayer was cut from their own Roman Catholic baptismal liturgies in the early 1900s, which is why they think there's been a rise of demonism just in the culture at large. Uh, but here's what, here's what the priest says. I command thee, unclean spirit, in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, that thou come out and depart from this infant, whom our Lord Jesus Christ hath vouchsafed to call to his holy baptism, to be made a member of his body and of his holy congregation. Therefore, thou cursed spirit, remember thy sentence, remember thy judgment, remember the day to be at hand wherein thou shalt burn an everlasting fire prepared for thee and thy angels, and presume not hereafter to exercise any tyranny towards this infant whom Christ hath bought with his precious blood, and by this holy baptism called to be of his flock. Now the phrase this infant is in italics, meaning you could substitute adult, person. I mean, this is this is an Anglican um, prayer for exorcism, and it is clear, it's direct, it's thoroughly scriptural. Um, we our our College of Bishops in two thousand in our two thousand nineteen BCP didn't use that particular prayer, but they did put the anointing with oil and the prayer of exorcism back in our liturgies for people who are being baptized. So it's it's not as, um, well, one, it's not in the old form of English like that, <laughs> but they, they did put it back in there that the priest, you know, the celebrant, usually the priest, would anoint the person being baptized and command the unclean spirits, you know, to be gone because anointing with oil for baptism like that, has been part of Christian practice, you know, since since the beginning, since our, our records tell us, and we get that from um, Hippolytus and some of the others, that there was an oil of exorcism that was part of the oil of catechumens, of discipleship. Basically the same oil, but the two different purposes there. The um, the prayer in 2019, you know, is, is, again, it's imprecatory, it's direct. Almighty God, deliver you but this is to the person instead of the to the spirit. Almighty God, deliver you from the powers of darkness and evil and lead you into the light and obedience of the kingdom of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, you know, if you, all of a sudden you're, you're in the process of blessing somebody uh, or the priest is baptizing or, you know, you, you've got that, the direct invocation of God's power upon the individual so that they're delivered from evil spirits. If a spirit starts to manifest, well, that, that 1549 is... A very prayer to have, very very good prayer to have in hand, on, on hand, you know, to have handy. Do you have that on handy, you know, pulled up ready during baptism services? Uh, something comparable, because mm. I've got some friends mm. uh, in in baptism, you know, and it's not with infants, but often with with adults and teenagers, you know, the demons begin to to writhe in the process of going down into the water, which again is characteristic of Christian practice. If they're there, put it that way, that with that kind of um, investment or infestation into the person's psyche. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, you don't really think about it, but those are, mm -hmm. uh, it's very, I guess, interesting. Yeah, and I think the biggest thing is even with this is like some people feel like they're kind of afraid to talk about topics like these because one, I don't know, it feels like more of like um, people don't know as much with it or whatever or what to do about it if it does happen, you know? And so that's why it's kind of interesting. But the thing is, it's like you still have to accept like this stuff does happen. Yeah. So, there has there is a practice for this to actually solve this and figure this out. So, um, and the way the way I look at it is, it's like, well, I don't want to talk about parachutes because the idea of a parachute is kind of scary. You know, like, what do you mean I'm free falling and gravity is going to have its course? Right. 
Um, but you want to know when you really want to know about that parachute or have a parachute? Yeah. You know, when you're a few thousand feet above the Earth's surface and you're like, wow, it'd be really cool to have a parachute right now. Free it's very, very, very similar. Well, we don't like these topics. or um, And then we approach them with an enlightenment perspective. Like I mentioned, you know, uh, property and objects, you know, animals, these kinds of things being under demonic power. We don't like that. But look at the scripture talks about before Israel goes into the promised land, that the land is is vomiting out the Canaanites because their practice is bringing curses. Israel's disobedience bringing curses, and, and part of that cursedness is an infestation of demonic spirits typically manifested through the idol worship. And we see Jesus dealing with these things categorically, driving unclean spirits out of people as much as he's talking about even now casting out the prince of this world in John chapter 12. You know, you've got... Um, When you've got the sacramental life of the church and the sacramentals themselves, so not just, you know, the Eucharist, Eucharistic elements of bread and wine or or water for baptism, but then you get into the sacramentals like holy water, which is basically baptismal water, or blessed uh, blessed crosses, the use of the consecrated oils, these uh, the use of the priest's stole, right? You got these sacramentals and whatnot. When those things recede in the life of the church. Well, the church typically begins to not operate in a healthy way in the other gifts of the Spirit, while she often still will. But that that kind of recedes, and the culture then has a pressing forward of magic, because magic is the, the fallen perversion of the sacramental life of the church. And so you get this rise of magic, and so now it's considered just magic. Well, I mean... This is part of the issue. God blesses through the through the blood of bulls and goat, goats and the oils and the frankincense of the old covenant, all of the stuff that's used for worship. Those are holy things. The Ark of the Covenant is a box, right? That's overlaid with gold. And in that box is God's glory cloud. Well, what is magic but the perversion of that sacramental life? And so we see, you know, the use of objects and things as as uh, sacramental means of grace, you know, and we see magic as the perversion of that and how diabolic all of that stuff becomes in the culture because we tend to open ourselves up to those influences as Western Enlightenment people because we don't think it's real. Right. And that gets into that whole subjective thing. It's only real if I feel it or if I believe it. Well, that's, that is objectively not true. So. Yeah, you can definitely see that, especially if you see like... A lot of times we're just like goofing around with like a Ouija board or something like that, right. especially right. in the culture. That's kind of one example of that. I wouldn't. I'm scared of that. I'm, like, I'm not messing with. <laughs> well, because you're tall. Like because I mean, I, I don't know. I, don't, I mean, what, what's the point? I don't. I don't care what they have to say. Leave me alone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one thing that you said that was really uh, intriguing was um, the idea of exorcism at baptism. Yeah. Um, because what? Who was? Look at the context of that. So you have a professing believer what is happening before so even within our, our liturgy you've already renounced yeah like uh in our specifically in ours it's uh the devil and all spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against god i renounce them right um and so you're dealing with someone who has a professional faith who has openly renounced the devil in his, his, his spirits but yet you're having that kind of reaction what theologically how do you explain that so that's all part of the process. So the renunciation is the person exercising their will that they are not going to obey those powers. And so then the priest pronounces those things gone and commands them to leave if they're, if they're present. It's something comparable in, in absolution, confession and absolution, because absolution 
by the priest is the reapplication of the grace that was already given in baptism. It's not new grace. It's what was already done in baptism being applied, reapplied. So the person repents, you know, Almighty God, I confess that I've sinned. The person repents, and then the priest pronounces the absolution. In this case, in baptism, the person is renouncing, repenting of having followed the prince of the power of the air. And now here's the priest pronouncing the blessing of deliverance from evil spirits. If there is some sort of necessary deliverance later on, well, then what you're doing again is you're still reapplying the effect of the covenant to that person's cor- that corner of their heart and their life. You know, so our whole, whole our whole Christian life is one of sanctification and growth and development, the process of becoming you know molded and shaped into the image of Christ. And there are times when there is deliverance in that because we are held captive to to a fallen power. And there's times when it's the flesh, but that, that all of that's part of the process of becoming a Christian, you know, and think about Israel taking the promised land city by city, city by city. It didn't happen at once. And so there had to be that Exodus event through the Red Sea and the, the, the creation of their fellowship with God and covenant, you know, with, with Moses and whatnot, although circumcision preexists that, but you guys see where I'm going here. And then you've got the steady development of taking more and more of the land. And it's the same process of growth and development for us. And there are times when you need, if you, if somebody hasn't been properly catechized and then properly decide to be discipled for baptism, and this is part of their exorcism here, this minor exorcism, if you will, is not part of their catechesis process. The likelihood that they will live their Christian lives under some kind of torment or uh, crippling influence is higher than not. It doesn't mean everybody does. But I mean, if that presence is there, the likelihood that it's just going to be exposed and driven out without being addressed is much lower. Does that make sense? So. Yeah. This is what's happening in catechesis, which is why the holy oil that the bishop consecrates, you know, one of the uses for the for the, the three blessed oils is the oil of the catechumens, which is also the oil of exorcism. You were anointed by the priest every day for six weeks or whatever it was before baptism in the early church to be exercised of any unclean spirits. Today, it's all backwards to, because we've reduced salvation to confession. Confess Jesus is Lord. Now you're saved. Now you should go get baptized because you're giving a witness to what you believe now. Instead of, I heard the gospel, the gospel worked in my heart. I was trained uh, and taught what it means to be a Christian. And I'm responding to grace that's regenerating me in this, this washing of the water of the word. Right. And part of that being grafted into the body of Christ is the driving out of these fallen powers. So are there like any, like, how do you say this? Like events or something that the person does that makes them more susceptible to it? Well, demons are notorious legalists, right? Uh, you know, that, that slogan, give the devil an inch and he'll take a mile. So if you're, if you're engaged in things that are active sin, like you're actively sinning, you're deliberately sinning against what God says not to do, yeah, you're opening yourselves up to that possibility. If it was easy, like if, if the devil could just take possession of everybody and kill them, he would. He would, but it's not easy. Even even the un- unregenerate person has a will that can resist temptation. Right. Right. I mean, you know, um, Jesus wouldn't say in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If it wasn't possible even for unregenerate people to do something that's good, not good in the sense to make them saved, but they can see good and do good things. You know what I mean? There's pre- there, uh, the theological phrase is prevenient grace. There's enough prevenient grace 
that our consciences all have a measure of light that we know that we can obey. If we obey that and then call out, and it works in us, bringing us closer and closer to, to Christ and the gospel. Um, but if you're intention, intentionally searing your conscience and engaged in activities that Scripture does says not to do, you become um, positioned in such a way that you're you've you're basically going to receive that that diabolic influence. Whether it's possession or not is in a different is a different matter, but that influence will be there. So we, uh, you already we talked about specific examples. Um, one of the ones that I see happening a lot is like house blessings, or yeah. like you gave specific examples. What does that process look like then when you go and do that? You've talked well, about the precursor, but what actually happens when you decide to walk in and do that? Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, we bless houses and bless any and every house every Epiphany season. That's been a traditional time when you know the priest will bless a home. It's just like an annual blessing kind of thing. Uh, we see a lot of this in the law of Moses where the priest would go in and inspect houses. You know, if there's, so like if there's certain kinds of mold, the house could stand, but if there's other kinds of mold, the house has got to come down stone by stone. The parallel for that are like, it's more or less local congregations. Some local congregations need to be wrapped up and bundled away um, or, or something like that. But the principle of blessing houses, blessing space and property. I mean, the kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. So we're blessing the ground, we're blessing the, the the property itself to become holy ground, you know, like the promised land. This is this is God's place here, this this physical world, because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So in the material world matters. We're not Gnostics. So we're blessing the ground itself. The wood, the stone, the glass, the pipes, the electrical wiring, everything is being dedicated to God's use. We're blessing the place. So we, we can do that for any house and every house, every epiphany. Um, every epiphany season. It's also appropriate then if you are moving into a new home, we, we would go and bless it then. And then, as we've mentioned, there are times when there is some diabolic or ghostly presence in a home when there's the hey, the request, hey, will you come check this out? Now, it sounds like Hollywood, but again, it's true. If there's been deaths or murders or suicides, or, I mean, there's those kinds of very traumatic events have some sort of often spiritual resonance in a place, it's discernible to, to more than just one person. And you don't need to know what happened on a property sometimes when you get there and you've got a discerning group of people. They Not only can they tell you what happened, they can usually tell you where it happened. And so you pray and you bless that place. You know, in our in our the great litany, you know, we ask that the curses on the land would be lifted. We pray that way all the time because there is something about like in Genesis, the blood of Abel from the ground, because he was murdered, is crying out for justice. And so the the blessing of the of the land, of the house, is the the one, there's that repentance and renunciation if there was evil that was committed there. But then there is often the celebration of the Eucharist, the blood of Christ is laying claim to this place, that the presence of Christ may come and fill it. And if people go on living in sinful patterns of behavior after that, well, then you've got a whole different ball of wax, um, which is why you need to know, do you even go and bless some of these places? You know, are you going to make it? Because this is, this is, there are people involved in various forms of witchcraft and, and, and sorcery. This is going to sound, this is true. Okay. They will go to Christian ministries to get delivered from a demon and then go back into their sorcery so that they get seven other demons. They go do this stuff on purpose so they become more infested with demonic powers because they're trying to create their own uh, witchcrafty 
power. That they, they want to be greater in that that those forces of magic and darkness and things. That they're really doing these things. And you'll see the same bizarre things with houses, you know, with their property, with their things. The, the same thing. They, because Jesus says that you know, if a, a spirit's driven out, it goes to arid places. It goes to dry places. Something in scripture. In Scripture, something we see that is hard to reconcile with our Enlightenment perspective, but they don't like water. Like there's something about holy water, and that's why we have holy water. But water that the unclean spirits don't like, so they go to these dry places and they'll go back to the house to the person they were cast out of. And if they find the house empty, Jesus says they go get seven of their friends. Well, that's a, that principle is true for individuals and for places. So if you've got place a place that's being used as for coven covens and whatnot i mean they will do that they'll have they'll pretend that they want the place blessed you know uh and that's when they also people will steal the sacrament they'll steal the blessed you know the the host and they'll do you know wicked things to the host because it's the body of christ to further invoke demonic powers where they are because if you don't rightly discern the body and the blood of christ you come under god's judgment and that's you know so they're they're inviting those powers you need discernment when you're dealing with these things so I shouldn't build my house on an ancient Indian burial ground. That's, That's what you're telling me. Well, <laughs> and I mean, also not to, and that demons can't swim. You know, that's a joke <laughs> uh, that they can't swim. I got a friend of mine. Uh, he told me one time when we were in college. He said, "I cast three demons out of people this summer." I said, "You did." <laughs> I didn't think they could swim because he grew up a pastor's kid, but he grew up being told that all this stuff was overseas. And so when he goes and preaches at a small church in rural Missouri that had like 13 people in it and cast three demons out of two different individuals that day, he was like, what is this? Yeah. And he just happens to have that particular charism on him, but the Lord uses him in, in a very deliverance, exorcism kind of kind of way. Um, with those, like where the demon manifests itself right away, he's, you know, that kind of stuff. Multiple stories, but that's that's one of the jokes, right? They yeah. can't swim. Um but there's something about them that doesn't like water. Right. So like when Jesus permits the the uh, uh, the demons to go into the lake in the pigs with the county of Legion, right? Uh, he said, they say, don't, don't send us away from here. And he sends them into the pigs and they go rushing into the water. Well, he's not being nice to them. That's, they don't like, like that's the whole, the abyss kind of imagery there in Revelation 7, that there's these, these demons bound in the abyss and they can't get out unless it's for judgment purposes on a, on a rebellious, idolatrous world. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty crazy. Like, I guess the biggest thing is just being aware of this stuff, too, you know? And knowing that there is options for what to actually do. Like, these situations are happening to you, you know? Well, and we've got got a a very anemic kind of Christian spiritualism, post-Christian spiritualism in the culture, and then in the church, some horrific ideas. One former uh, presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, she said that the Apostle Paul violated the spirituality of the slave girl in Philippi when he cast a demon out of her. He shouldn't have cast a demon out of her. So when you get these nonsensical, idiotic, hellish statements like that, not only are you trying to cloak over the demonism in other places, you're, you're really exposing how you know infested with these evil powers you are yourself. At least yeah. your, your worldview is um, in that bondage. And th- these are things that need to be catechized against those kinds of perspectives. But then also to teach, yeah, it's real. It's real. It's part of the Christian life and experience, but then don't make it, you know, your sum total of measure for what's true and, and right. So if like, if you're someone who's, who's running in 
to these things. Yeah. And it's not like they're manifesting, but they're, it's like, okay, this is apparent that this is either happening in this place, in this person's life. Um, you, you know, you talked about like, like counseling, medical, mm-hmm. you know, like if, if someone's feeling a certain way, whether, you know, like bipolar or, you know, so like a lot of times medication can yeah, control that. So, you know, I mean, it, it's not always like, all right, let's, let's cast these demons out. If you go get medicine and it works, it's not a demon. I mean, that's a very logical I mean, conclusion. That's just, you, know, that's, like, you know, if you get medicine and you're better, that's not, so that's why you want to exhaust those things first. Right. Um, but like, just like for like one of our listeners, let's say like you're in the boat, like all like, you know, legitimately, like oh, like last week, I wonder what what I should do. <laughs> right. You know, I'm, 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 it's just literally a hypothetical situation. I mean, what are what are your recommendations? Like, what are the next steps if someone is like, this is something I'm experiencing either in my life or I'm seeing it happen in someone else's life? What are their next steps to actually deal with this? So here's what I would recommend: if you're not connected to a church that seems to know anything about this, the likelihood that you're going to have an ACNA church, you know, the Anglican Church of North America. In your in your neighborhood, small because the we just don't have churches all over the we have them all over the country, but there's spots where it's quite a drive to get there. Um, I'd look there first, right, to, to, right, and look for that priest and contact that person. If that's not present, I would call the Roman Catholics or I'd call the Greek Orthodox. I would call them. It's not because I don't trust. Like some of my good some of my good Pentecostal friends are profound exorcist deliverance ministers. They're fantastic. But I'm not going to give a blanket statement to say to call them because, as I've mentioned in here, I've been in plenty of those services where they're casting out the demon of obesity. You know, um, and that's just like that's <laughs> not a demon. Yeah, you, the flesh. You, if somebody's problem is the carnality of the flesh, you can't cast that out. You can't, That's not a demon to drive out. Your 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 sinful decisions are not demons to expel. So. If if somebody wants, I mean, they can contact me. Like if they say, hey, I you know, send an email to, to you, Caleb, or to me, and they say, hey, I live in such and such place. I think this is happening. Do you guys know anybody? We can gladly. I mean, if I have a, a good Pentecostal buddy for those, and I'm saying that for people who automatically think that Roman Catholics and the Orthodox aren't saved. One, you got to get over that. Um, but two, um, <laughs> you know, two, I've I've got some good friends who are very, I, I would trust them with, with this. I don't want to call them out over the podcast, you know, um, but I, w- I would look for a Roman Catholic or an Orthodox priest because I know that they have systems in place to handle these kinds of things. The Ang- our, we, our Anglican uh, ACNA, we do as well, um, but so do Rome and the Orthodox. And I would recommend that you, you, you look at, you look to that, contact that priest to get some counsel. And some of them don't, I'll say this too, some of the Roman Catholics, and they don't believe uh, that demons are really going on. I mean, they really exist. There, there was, um, oh, Gabriel Amorth. He was an exorcist, Father Gabriel Amorth. He just passed away recently. Chief exorcist in the Vatican, in Rome for decades, was in speaking with one of the directors for, I think it was the Jesuits? I'm probably getting some details wrong here, so just got to bear with me. But one of the principal uh, officials at the Roman Catholic Church for the Jesuits was saying how demons aren't real. And Father Amort said to him something to the effect of, I have a book for you to read about this topic so you can see that they are real. And he says, oh, what is that? He says, the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, that that's something if somebody wants to like do a little more study on this. There was a real documentary. It's on Netflix. Uh, you mentioned The Exorcist. The guy that directed The Exorcist was able to meet with Father Amort and get an, an actual exorcism in the Vatican on video. And it's not fake. Like they didn't, you know, it's it's a documentary. You know, so you've yeah. got some music in the background and stuff. But, um, you know, I thought that was a pretty pretty fair uh, presentation. You know, it's called The Devil and Father Amort. A-R-M-O-T-H on, on Netflix. That was pretty good. It's hard to find ones that you can recommend without them Hollywoodizing it, you know. Yeah. Or, or hitting people with Bibles and yelling at them. That's not what you do either. That's not how that works. <laughs> Got to beat the devil out of it. De- demons are not, so they're, <laughs> the demons are not persuaded by your volume. Yeah. Whether you're loud or not has nothing to do with the power of the Holy Spirit and the authority of Jesus. What about your enthusiasm? No, your enthusiasm does not make <laughs> them leave, right? This is where you got to watch out. People start to rebuke like demon spirits over a region. What? Um, <sighs> That kind of stuff, you got to be really, really discerning um, and biblical and and just understanding that the primary means for the overthrow of demonic spirits is the presentation and the preaching of the gospel. That's when he falls like lightning from heaven. 100%. And you kind of made the analogy of like um, rebuking spirits of like regions or, you know, one of two things is going to happen. It's going to be, they're just going to ignore you because like, okay, whatever. Like, I don't care. Like, yeah, you, this has nothing like. Anyway, like it does one of the like anyways, or it's like, you know, hold my beverage, watch this. And either, you know, if you want to see, you want to see profound ministry against regional demonic principalities. Look at the suffering of the apostle Paul. He is suffering because he's going from principality to principality to principality, announcing its overthrow when he preaches the gospel, and it retaliates violently against him. And if all of the intercessors, I won't say all, if many of the intercessors I've met understood that start to, you know, speak against and to, and to, 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 to decree and prophesy and everything against these powers, understood that if God actually permitted them to engage them, their lives would go into a whole nother level of suffering beyond what they understand. They would stop. They, because Jude warns against this, and so does Peter in Second Peter. They warn against this dramatically. Not even, Ga- not even Michael thought he would just fight the devil. He said, the Lord rebuke you. So this stuff is nothing to trifle with. And, um, you know, it's it's a very serious thing, you know, which is why when I go do house blessings or when I'm going to pray with somebody for, for deliverance or exorcism, I want to have people praying with me and for me who can pray, yes, Lord, strength and grace. And it's not because we're afraid, but we recognize really what's going on and why to bring it back to the whole like counseling side of things. If you go casting a demon out of somebody and it's not a demon, you're going to do some real harm harm to somebody. You know, you, you got to get, they got to be okay. All, all, all of the things notwithstanding. And then you can deal with these other issues, the diabolic ones. I mean, I guess, I guess without, we're not, we're talking about spiritual warfare, but much more on an individualized level and to talk about like regional princes and some people may not even know what we're talking about. And, and Daniel, um, you know, he has a vision and he's praying and he's fasting for the meaning of the vision and it's three weeks and then Gabriel appears, you know, and tells him that he was withheld. He was withstood by the prince of Persia. And that's what we mean by prince, that over Persia, there was a demonic power that held back Gabriel 
from getting the answer to Daniel. And it wasn't until Michael, the prince of Israel, so the, the angelic guardian of Israel, came, held back the prince of Persia's power, we don't know its name, then Gabriel could come to Daniel. So you have in the spiritual heights a hierarchy of powers and principalities and authorities and dominions. You know, you've got the fallen ones and you've got the ones that aren't fallen and you've got you know, these choirs of angels and, and all of this interaction that's going on. Um, I would say this to kind of tie it back to our, our podcast uh, that we did on the communion of the saints, that Christ is seated far above all of those things. And when you're put into his body, you're seated above them as well. And, and God does this to display his majesty, Paul says in Ephesians 3, to those principalities and powers. But then he says in chapter 6 that we're fighting against them while we're still in the flesh. And so the intercession of, our, of that church victorious is very beneficial for us in spiritual warfare, which is one of the reasons that in many, many accounts, when the exorcism is coming to a conclusion and a demon is being driven out, the person is often seeing you know, the Blessed Virgin Mary, uh, John or St. Benedict or some other saint in history who was known for having authority over unclean spirits, those the saints are alive. And there are times that in, their direct intercession becomes involved or St. Michael's you know action in driving out that un, unclean power. So, I mean, we would almost have to do something just on spiritual warfare, larger, and then narrow it down to exorcism. But I think, I think that kind of creates at least enough of a template, you know, for somebody to start thinking differently if they've never thought about it. Just to open up the mind, like, you know, yeah. I mean, we talk about the more sp- the spiritual side of things, you know, and how it exists. Like, there's more than just the physical that exists. Right. You know. And Not I, alone ghosts, right? I mean. Yeah. And, and I think, I mean, people who are listening to this, they're kind of like on uh, one or two camps. Either everything's physical. Yeah. You know, you start dealing with these things. Like, oh, they're hearing voices. Oh, they're, they're dealing with the. Uh, schizophrenia, bipolar, anxiety, you know, they like it's all, it's all physical. You can control every single bit of this with uh, the right medication or the right chemical in the mind. Yeah. And then you have the other side who's like ready to slap him in the face with the Bible and cast the demons out of him. Or maybe not that's extreme. Or maybe they think it's all spiritual attack. Right. You know, that's kind of, the first part was a generalization, but there's, you know, everything you can just cast out. And I, I think there's a happy medium there. There, there's somewhere in the in the middle, and I think that's even your recommendation of uh, of Rome, Eastern Orthodox, Anglicans. I think there's an understanding of a good, happy median in all of that, and that, yeah. that's what I've that's in my experience thus far. You know, with an Anglican communion interacting a little bit more with Rome and the East, um, Eastern Orthodox. Like I, I see a balance there, and it's true. Like, hey. Go see a counselor. Go see a doc. Yeah. Like, let's try to fix this where we can. And it, it's a good, happy medium there. You, you do have some, you know, Protestant charismatic uh, healing ministries that have been around for enough decades now that they've really put together some good systems that recommend, you know, that people deal with these things, that they be addressed. You know, everything from, uh, you know, maybe the McNutts, Francis McNutt, or Restoring the Foundations, or there's quite a number of these, these, these groups out there. They do a pretty good job. Do a pretty good job, you know. If somebody has direct questions on them, they're free to, to ask us, you know. And if I know about it, I'll either answer that or direct them to somebody who does. But um, definitely going to the historic traditions where these things are understood a little bit more is is a healthier step, generally speaking. I mean, I, as far as I know, every Roman Catholic diocese in the United States has an exorcist that's been appointed by its bishop, and it's a priest who's been trained in the Vatican. 
Uh, the Orthodox obviously aren't sending their people to the Vatican, <laughs> but they've got they've got an understanding <laughs> on it. Uh, and Anglicans, I mean, as I said, either our bishops have have we've talked about it, and they've our bishops give us the directions, the directives they want us to have. You know, even from what I understand in the Church of England, for all of these problems that's going on, every diocese in the Church of England has an exorcist now. And Rome doesn't, last I heard, in England. So all of that to say, I mean, these are really important things to to keep into consideration. So um, in, in researching this, um, I saw a really interesting question on one of the the forums that I was – I'm not part of it, but, you know, I'm just going researching through. And um, one of the, the questions and that someone had charged them with um, was that Anyone who is not a Roman Catholic uh, exorcist um, is not true that the Protestants are fraud uh, because uh, allegedly you see more elaborate, extreme, radical, demonic demonstrations uh, from those exorcisms rather than the uneventful and relatively mundane of others. What are your What are your thoughts on this? Like, uh, okay, so historically, one of the claims that the Roman Church leveled against the Church in England, against the Anglican Church, when it was still primarily the Church in England, that why they weren't legitimate ministers is because they didn't do imprecatory exorcisms. The clergy did not command demons to leave, whereas the Roman clergy did. There was never a break for them in that up until recently. That's the irony, is that Rome in that era a few hundred years ago was like, we're real priests because we'll command the demons to leave and you guys won't do it. Well, there was an account, there was an event in Barbados um, several hundred years back in the Anglican Church where, with an exorcism that was quite dramatic. Well, I don't have time to get into it. But the irony is in those days, it was reverse of what it is now in some places. The Roman, the, the, a lot of Roman exorcists, not all of them, but a lot, a lot of Roman Catholic exorcists in the United States say that Protestant exorcism isn't legitimate because they say Protestant ministry is not ministry. It's not really a church. And that you don't want to engage in exorcism unless you're a priest authorized by your bishop because you don't have the backing of the church behind you. Well, as Anglicans, we obviously would say, no, that's not true. Um, let's Let's talk about those exorcism practices that are going on. And then, as I've already mentioned, what about the Jesuit director who says that there's no devil? So it's kind of like, hey, guys, you're not doing real exorcism because your house is in disorder. Um, well, let's let's turn that mirror around for a second, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, and that that's that's just you you have you have a stronger resistance to those things in um Protestant circles because of the enlightenment like we've talked about than you do in Roman Catholic circles. But no, no, there that I don't think that accusation rightly like its presuppositions aren't aren't correct. It's just, it's presuming things that are, are improper, and that's where the the mess starts, you know. So we we are engaging in legitimate exorcism, deliverance, not just the Roman Catholic clergy. I know a lot of times there are exorcist conferences, you know, deliverance spiritual warfare conferences, and it's the Roman Catholic, Greek Orthodox, and then usually Pentecostals and some Anglican clergy who get together for those events. And from what I hear, I've not been to one, what I hear is they're very beneficial as these guys are, are swapping stories and just praying and sharing with each other. Well, I think we, this is an interesting topic, and I think we did an all right job with it. Or we did bad, I don't know. Well, we didn't talk about ghosts. And let me just say this. Um, there's a lot of Christians in the Enlightenment in the United States 
who do not believe in ghosts. European Christians don't have a problem with this, neither do others. But in our funeral services, there's a reason that we are commending the soul to God. It's been largely the Anglican practice and not to speculate as to what's going on, and I would recommend that to people. Uh, they're trapped or something. Look, you just got to be careful with some of that lang- la- uh, language and lingo. Um, but is it possible that there is some ghostliness at your at your home or some other place that's not a demon? Yes. And in that case, it would not be an exorcism. You are better off to call the priest, tell them what you think is going on, get the priest's counsel and wisdom, and it may be something that you're just going to pray some of the prayers from the funeral service and commending the soul to God. I know that there's a lot of people that can't process that, but there's too much history in the Christian church of that being an event that some things it's better not to try to articulate as it is to just deal with. Well said. I think so. Well, oh, let me say this too, Caleb. I know you keep, you, you're like we're wrapping up, but I keep thinking about something else. I had somebody ask me two years ago. There was there was something going on in their home, and their their sheets kept getting pulled off of them, right? And the lady says it was her her dead husband because she would see him standing there, you know, and uh, he was maimed and crippled, just like he was when he was alive. And she says, so you can come bless the house. I said, oh, yeah, we can do that. She said, but if you do that, will he leave? I said, yes, because that's not your husband. It's not. I said, no, that, that's not your husband. That's, that's a familiar spirit. That, that's, that's, a, that's a demonic spirit pretending to be him to deceive, mm. right? So you've got to differentiate between what's a familiar spirit, what's a demon, what is, quote, quote, a ghost, you know, a disembodied person. Yeah. There's a lot of there, a lot there for us to talk about. Maybe at another time, and if people want to send us questions in on that directly, we can we can shoot in the dark and try to answer them. That'll be a, <laughs> <laughs> that'll be a crazy one to take on. But um, well, I hope everybody enjoyed the episode this week. You know, I'm Caleb, and I'm here with Adam, and I'm Daryl, and we'll see you later. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>